The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 184. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart, Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding! Position universe. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Hey, I'm Scottish. I can complain about things. Ta-da! Ooh. She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing The Time of the Angels. It's a first of a two-parter featuring the 11th Doctor and Amy Pond and River Song, but we'll get to that in a second. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hello, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, uh, if you could do us a, a big favor, if you're a fan of The Secrets of Doctor Who, you can help us out by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from, and sharing the podcast with your friends. That helps us grow the community. You do not know how much that helps. And so... We really do appreciate it when we get reviews. And, of course, we also like the nice things you say about us. But uh, that's not the primary reason we, we, we like it. Uh, well, at least that's what I'm telling you. So uh, we're talking today about the first of a two-parter. Uh, this week we're talking about Time of the Angels. And the next, next week we'll be talking about the second part uh, called Flesh and Stone. And this is a two-parter that features the return of River Song which is uh, interesting. This was a creation of Stephen Moffat during Russell T. Davies' time in uh, the uh, Silence in the Library two-parter there. Uh, And so River Song is back now that Moffat is the showrunner, as well as something else Stephen Moffat created, uh, his villains, the, the Weeping Angels. So I find it interesting, just to start off, that when Russell T. Davies started the revival of the series in 2005, he brought back classic monsters right away. I mean, the first episode had the Autons, um, and uh, t- there was something else, too, the Autons and the other big blobby well, thing. The the big blobby thing was the intelligence that controls the Autons. Right. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and then he brings back the Daleks, you know, fairly quickly, too. Whereas, so far, Moffat, this is only the, the, the what, the, the third, third story. Third story. Since he's not reviving the series, but he's going right into new monsters that he's created. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was interesting. And he's going to his characters, you know, not even yeah. like ones that Russell T. Davies, because of course he wrote, he wrote Blink, right? I can't remember. Yes. He wrote Blink, yes. Yeah, yeah. so he, he create, basically created the, the Weeping Angels and then he brought them back, you know, right away. And the Weeping Angels are widely regarded as the most recognizable monsters of new of the new who era mm-hmm. they're the yeah. the closest thing we have to a new who daleks or cybermen right. yes yes maybe sad to say this is in my opinion the high point of the weeping angels because it's all downhill from here and I not agree. just because the gravity of the ship <laughs> well, turns off <laughs> so i had a couple of thoughts about that first though i wanted to say that the i i also like something else about this which is this is the crash of the byzantium when River Song first shows up in Silence in the Library and she tries to sync diaries with the Doctor, 
which he doesn't even have a diary yet mm -hmm. that he's yep. carrying to sync with her. But she's flipping through her diary and, and she's going, oh, it's early days. Have we done Crash of the Byzantium yet? <laughs> and and now yep. we get to see Crash of the Byzantium, which is apparently the next time she and the Doctor meet. Right. So I like that, that we just had a little bitty reference, which now gets paid off. In terms of the Weeping Angels, there are really only three stories. I mean, I know, I, I, and I think the Weeping Angels, like other villains, but in a special way, lose the more you see them. Yes. With the Weeping Angels, less is more. And the edge gets progressively taken off them the more times you defeat them and so forth. And they're hampered in a way that the master is not because they can't talk for themselves. And the Daleks, mm. even the Daleks can talk for themselves in a way the Weeping Angels can't. So we can't have updates on their plans. So they're, in a way, they're a kind of one-trick, two-trick pony, and that's it. Right. But there's really only three stories where the Weeping Angels are the primary antagonists. There's Blink, there's this two-parter, and then there's Angels Take Manhattan. Mm. And they do appear a couple of other times as, like, background throwaway monsters as part of a crowd or something, but they're not the primary antagonist. And so, really, there is only these three stories. So, I think the reputation of them progressively losing is something that has to be understood with some context, because it's not right. like they've been dramatically overused. Right. I mean, yeah. you could say maybe they've been a little bit overused. I would say they haven't really been overused at all. It's just there are some flaws with some of the individual episodes that could have been fixed. In Angels Take Manhattan, the biggest thing that gets everybody angry about that episode is the Statue of Liberty as an angel. <laughs> yes. Which makes no sense. Right. And we can talk about why when we get to that episode. But if they had just not done that, yeah, people wouldn't hate on the episode in the same way. And I think the Angel's reputation would be a little different today than it is. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's like they have to continually, every time they show a, a vi any monster or villain, the more they show it, the more they have to introduce a new element, something new we haven't right. seen before. And what that does is eventually sort of degrades it because it just becomes, uh, you know, whereas a villain that can speak like the master, can change, can be different and new, but and like, have a new plan besides touch mm -hmm. people and send them back in time, or exactly. in this episode, snap their necks. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree. I agree that it, it it's it, this, uh, but I agree with Father Corey. This is the high point. I think this is the probably the 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 best episode. It's a, in some ways I compare this to the Aliens franchise, where you have the first movie is one alien or a couple of angels. And mm -hmm. it's really scary. And then in the second one, it's scary in a different way because there's lots of them. <laughs> and, right. you know, and you have a whole crew of soldiers who have to fight against them. And Stephen Moffat apparently deliberately modeled this two-parter after Aliens, okay. after the sequel to Alien. And I agree, it's, it, it, this, is, this is the Weeping Angels version of Aliens. But yeah. for me, because I didn't like Aliens... I thought those space marines totally deserved to die. <laughs> Game over, man. <laughs> yeah, the the original alien is the one that works for me and the original blink is the one that works for me and although I yeah. do like Time of the Angels and Flesh of Stone, for me blink is the high point. Okay. Okay. Well, let's get let's get into this episode. We'll talk more about some of the details as we go along. Uh we start with a guy standing in a in a beautiful field. 
with a smudge of lipstick on his on his face. Um, and it's a security guard who's got the hallucinogenic lipstick, which is apparently River Song's trademark. We hear from this this guy who's in a tuxedo who walks up to the the security guard. Uh, and this is uh, the first time we've had hallucinogenic lipstick, by the way. Yes, yes, uh, we will see that again. The opening I find is very James Bond. It feels very mm-hmm. much like a James Bond spy movie. We don't see River's face as she, you know, breaks into this secure room and. She has a pistol that she turns into a welding torch, and so on and so forth. And then we cut from that to 12,000 years later <laughs> with the doctor and Amy in a church that's apparently now a museum uh, as the, the doctor is walking around judging the exhibits. Called the Delirium Archive. Yes, mm-hmm. which is a, that's a, that's a kind of a fun name. I, I want to go to that museum. And uh, Amy's kind of... She, it feels like Amy's like like one of my, actually like one of my kids. It was like uh dragging. Do we have to go through another exhibit? I want to go to get. Well, my kids would say ice cream, and she says uh, I want to go to a planet now, like you promised me. It's so it's very like like parent dragging kid through the museum feel to it. But the doctor says this is the uh, resting place of the headless monks, as is one of the reasons why this is a great museum, which uh, we'll see later, won't we? Eventually, when a good man goes to war, yeah. Yeah. And then Amy says she realizes that museums are how the doctor keeps score, which is kind of funny because he's walking around going, uh, wrong, wrong, like judging <laughs> all of the uh, the labels on, on the uh, exhibits and then says, oh, that's one of mine. That's one of mine. <laughs> I just I love that bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. So and that's when they come upon the home box, which he explains is. Like uh, like a black box on an airplane, except it's des- it's in a spaceship and it's designed to when the spaceship crashes, go home. You know, find its way home. We should like have that technology. I yes. mean, <laughs> we, we would know what happened to the Malaysia airliner if we had that. I, That's I predict for sure. within twenty years we'll have we if we want within twenty years we can definitely have home boxes. Mm. Well, you think about it. If it, like if it crashes in the ocean, it pops out of a out of a uh, door. And it will have like it'll be like a drone with a yeah. you know float to the and surface it, and then boom right along the water yeah <laughs> or at least float to the surface and turn on the satellite transponder to let everybody know where it is yeah yeah it definitely should uh, I thought that, that that it looks like a pan the Pandorica I, am I mm-hmm. off base that's just in my memory it also looks like a Borg cube or yeah. uh, any number of other cubes oh, okay I because well, of the interior it had like that mm-hmm. weird shape in it. I thought that's what the Pandorica looked like. I didn't go to look because I just I just was going from memory. I think the Pandorica just ha- it doesn't have that carved out round shape. It just has a circle on the oh, okay. outside. Okay. If I remember correctly, what I liked about the home box is it's is the writing on it. Yes. Because yep. it has what the doctor interprets as old high Gallifreyan, which looks fairly consistent with the Time Lord writing we've seen in Classic Who. But in New Who, they have this circular writing for, mm-hmm. for that Gallifreyan is written in. And so apparently, there's been a shift in the script that's used to write Gallifreyan between the old high Gallifreyan script and the modern Gallifreyan script. And that explains the difference. And I like right. that they include that, the older style writing here, as a visual reference. It's Stephen Moffat doing his continuity geek stuff, and they don't make a big deal out of it. They just say, oh, old high Gallifreyan. And the fans who happen to notice the difference in the two scripts can make the inference. Right. 
And apparently they had old high Gallifreyan in Classico a few times. Yes. Yeah, that they used, which looked basically like Greek, like the Greek alphabet in some cases. Well, unless you read the Greek alphabet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there was like Sigma and Theta and like those, those letters. Yeah, there were, yeah, yeah there were a couple, they, a couple of letters they referenced. Right. But uh, so this old high Gallifreyan message that was engraved into it 12,000 years ago was uh, from River. And, and the Dr. Wax is poetic about, you know, oh, the ways that old high Gallifreyan, the, just the sound of it could conquer planets. And then Amy asks, well, what does it say? And it says, hello, sweetie, which is yeah. you know, <laughs> it's like a like a, like a, 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 your wife leaving you a message on a sticky note. Uh, so well, very obviously, yeah, yes, because they're uh, still playing coy with us about River is the Doctor's future wife, right? Well, and we'll see her do this again with a. Well, she'll carve something into a cliff face, yes. uh, later on. Well, that, that, and every every time she meets him, she says hello, sweetie. Yes, yep. until she doesn't recognize him as Peter Capaldi, and he gets to say the line. Yes, yes. Which that exactly. again, we talked about that, and that was a great episode. <laughs> so uh, River gets is b- back 12,000 years ago. River's cornered by the man in a tux and his guards uh, at an airlock. And she tells him that uh, based on what's in the ship's vault, the ship won't reach its, reach its destination, i.e. the weeping angel that's in the vault. Uh, and the TARDIS arrives just in time for her to blast open the airlock and float through space into the doctor's arms. Because uh, a la uh, uh, Princess Leia in <laughs> The Last Jedi. And, no, uh, much much better than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> but it, it's and, also, uh, I love it. I love how the TARDIS ends up showing up at the right time, where the Doctor's patched into this home box, gets yes. the video feed from this event, and oh, by the way, come to these coordinates. Da 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 da. Yeah. Which includes the word is. acorn. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I like how they incorporate things like acorn into the alphanumeric system in the future. That's not the only time we see that. <laughs> yeah. um, and she says, oh, and I'll need an oxygen corridor. So right. <laughs> there is an explanation for why she doesn't asphyxiate while she's between the ship and the TARDIS. Although the TARDIS appears after she's in... Never mind. <laughs> I'm not going well, to nitpick yeah, on that. <laughs> so if we're going to pick on that, actually, you don't immediately die from explosive decompression. It's much more horrible than that. It takes a while. <laughs> yep. Yes, yes. Uh, so... Uh, the the Titus does arrive just in time for her to to, to float through in the doctor into the doctor's arms, and the the Starliner, the Byzantium, uh, flies away, and she says, "Follow that ship." And so they do. Uh, River uh, shows that she knows how to fly the Tardis. Mm-hmm. Uh, she mentions uh, turn on the blue stabilizers, uh, which he calls them the bore the the blue boringers <laughs> because <laughs> they turn off the noise, uh, the the shaking of the ship. They and get she, rid of the turbulence. Yeah, and then she uh, lands the ship without it making the noise, uh, which I have to say, Matt Smith does a good job of imitating with his with his mouth. You know, the, 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 uh, the, the <laughs> materialization yeah. noise. And uh, this is the the part, the point where River says that's what yeah, makes that noise because you fly with the brake on, which is uh, great. And he says, "I like the that that noise. It's a, it's a wonderful noise." So, uh, and I. I I wonder, was that controversial with fans? Did fans like the, the get get a little upset that they may, they turned that iconic noise into just a quirk of the doctor? I, in my opinion, it's kind of been forgotten about. To be honest with you, it's kind yeah. of just seen as a throwaway line. The same thing with the blue stabilizer; it's all just kind of thrown away. Yeah. Isn't this cute? She knows how to fly the TARDIS better than the doctor does. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, we also get it established she learned to fly the TARDIS from the very best, and as Matt Smith is about to take credit for that, she says, pity you weren't there that day. <laughs> yes. Oh, man, put in his place. Uh, it, it is a little fun to have like someone who's sort of the equal of the Doctor in this case, you know, in, in many ways, who can, you know, hold her own with him and kind of put him in his place. In this respect, she's very much like Romana was. Yes. Because Romana, back in Classic Who, was another time lady who actually scored higher than the doctor on the, on her tests at, at at school, and and she could do exactly the same thing. She would pilot the TARDIS better than the doctor, or things like that. I mean, this is this is a very Romana type thing. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So they they bring they get to the planet, and uh, the doctor does the. He, here's where he's a little. He shows him his skill is a little higher than uh, than Rivers. He she wants to do a, an environment check, and so he's like, oh, yeah, uh, opens the door, sticks his head up, goes, it's nice out. And yeah. then <laughs> she's trying to, like, look up where they are. He's like, we're on this planet, Alfalva, Matraxis, seventh planet, oxygen-rich atmosphere, toxins in the soft band, 11-hour day, and chance of rain later, which is yeah. a, lot of, a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, so then he's just going to leave her there. Uh, he's gonna, She walks out the door, and he goes to fly off uh, until Amy bugs him into staying. Yeah, and the reason for that that they establish is because he knows Rivers his future and he doesn't want to he's trying to avoid contaminating his timeline with information about his future. Right. And and that's where Amy says, "Can you run away from that?" and he says, "I can run away from anything I like. Time's not the boss of me." Which uh, is is Which well, for a yeah. time lord is kind of true. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> yes. So they go outside because because he again he had promised Amy that they would visit a planet because they'd they'd been to the London in space uh, and then they'd been to that's it they've been it, to London well, in space and then they went to London in the Blitz so they really haven't gotten mm. <laughs> gone very mm. far so she wanted to go to a planet and so this is the the planet so he he, he she kind of bugs him into letting her go outside uh, and then we see that the Byzantium has crashed conveniently into an empty abandoned temple. So that the statues that we see won't look out of place at first. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which, you know, that's a, a convenient little uh, bit there. Uh, and that's when we get these soldiers who start beaming down around them. Actually, before that, um, yeah. we have River try to sink diaries again. And this time we get a reference to, have we done the Bone Meadows yet? Uh, and yes. I, and I want to know what the Bone Meadows are now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, he, since he's met her at the end of her life, he refers to her as Professor River Song to Amy, and she says, ooh, I'm going to be a professor one day. <laughs> so apparently, at this point, she's only a doctor, but hasn't yet been appointed a professor at a university. Right, right. So, yeah, so this is when the, the soldiers start beaming down around them, uh, transmatting in, including Father Octavian, Bishop Second Class, with 20 clerics under his command. Hmm. When Amy asks about that, he says, it's the 51st century. The church has moved on. <laughs> and <laughs> Which, and let, let's be clear. I, I think the assumption, obviously, would be the Church of England. Yes. They're yes. clearly, they're, they're Anglicans based Anglican. on what so we they, later they, learn. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we, we, see, we do see them again later, so. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm, I'm, was a little bugged that, I mean, and not in a bad way, it's just a little annoying that they consistently refer to Father Octavian as father when he's a bishop. Yeah, right. And they don't refer to any of the priests as as father. And it's like, okay, I I get that they're from the 51st century, so honorific nomenclature can change in that time. Like 
calling someone shepherd book, for example, right, yeah. instead of pastor book, when shepherd, shepherd and pastor mean the same thing. But it just felt odd, given that I'm from the 21st century, not the 51st century, and they didn't really set it up. It feels more like a writing mistake yeah. than a deliberate choice. Right. right. Uh, by the way, uh, Father Octavian is played by Ian Glenn, who uh, folks who've seen Game of Thrones will recognize as Sir Jorah, uh, which was, I think, about a little after this aired, I think. This was 2010. And so I think uh, the first season of Game of Thrones might have been a little after this, but somewhat contemporaneous, but a great, great actor, great character. Mm -hmm. By the way, also wanted to mention, and this is, I think this is a deliberate choice. I mean, clearly is that the 51st century church has this military thing going where they're carrying weapons and stuff. Mm -hmm. Certainly that is not the case today. And in mm -hmm. the Catholic Church in particular, clerics are not allowed to carry arms in that way. Not in, not in yeah. combat. That is correct. Not in combat. Yeah. And, I mean, for self-defense, but not yes. you can't can't serve yeah, as a we, soldier. And it explicitly in canon law says no to that. But this is a deliberate choice there. And especially it's even more ironic for the Church of England in certain ways. Yeah. Right. <laughs> to, that it's gone military. It's almost like the, uh, the 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 religious military orders of the of the Crusading yeah. era. Yeah, yeah, it's like the Knights Templar. Right. Interesting. So this is also the point where we're where we're told, you know, now that this is that what they're dealing with is a weeping angel. The doctor at until this point did not know, and this is uh, <laughs> going to be a a, a big uh, point of concern for the doctor. They talk and say that the goal here is to break into the catacombs under the temple in this cliff face in front of them. The ship crashed in the temple that's on this cliff way above them. And they're going to break into the catacombs that are there under the temple and climb up through the tunnels to get to the angel in the hold in, of the ship and neutralize it. So that, that's, this is, we've, we've now established what our... What our uh, our end game overall is goal is, yeah. Me meanwhile, Amy is trying to figure out who River is, mm -hmm. and uh, what I find interesting, I I don't think the actresses knew, mm, yes, at this point that oh, I'm actually your mom, right, right. right. But in hindsight, River's really keeping it cool that 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 she's not sure. betraying any sign that she knows Amy is her mom. Uh, That's I was right. Say, I, yeah, I wonder if this was even conceived by that point. No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that that they would make that twist late, you know, in a couple of seasons. I wonder if that was even thought of at that point. Uh, I I don't know. I I but obviously the wife thing is thought of because yeah. Amy really lands a dart right in the bullseye and says she's Mrs. Doctor from the future, isn't she? <laughs> and, and and Matt Smith doesn't know, so he ducks the question. That's right. That's right. So. They salvage a bit of video from the uh, surveillance footage in the hold of the ship of the Weeping Angel. It's a it's a four second video of the Weeping Angel statue on loop, uh, and and River says it was dormant and dug up, and it's been in private collectors' hands for like a hundred years. I think she said for a long time, waiting. The angel, right? Yeah. And compared to the ones that were on Earth from Blink, uh, the doctor says those were scavengers, barely able to fight, but this one is a weeping angel at its deadliest, most powerful, most malevolent mm. abilities. So that explains all the new abilities it has. Yes. Yep. And 
this is also the creepiest part of both episodes for me. This this scene <laughs> where <laughs> Amy gets stuck in this trailer with this looping video of the angel, and we get the the angel starts moving in the video loop. This mm-hmm. and that's an important point. Is this is not a live feed of the right. hold. This is a recorded four second loop and, from and something yet, that happened before the crash. Yes, and and yet. The angel is not only able to move on the screen, but also affect the surroundings around the screen with yes. keeping the monitor from being able to turn off, keeping the door from being open, the lights flickering, all that stuff. And then it begins to come through the screen at her, so that's to become present in the room. And all of this just, like, I remember the first time I watched it, and even this time I watched it, this always just creeps me out. I have to sit with my back against the wall. I mean, this is... <laughs> the idea of something about I just I don't like having it paused on screen. It's I intellectually I know that it's not real, but man, this hits at some deep dark part, lizard part of my brain. I can think of it as the movie Poltergeist. There, here, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. I think I think this scene is effectively creepy. It's I've seen far creepier, so this this doesn't push my buttons the way some other things have. I mean, let's scare yeah. Jessica to death. Wow, is that creepy? <laughs> But but this is you know it it is effectively creepy. One of the things I like about this, and this one just goes by very subtly. After the initial blink episode, fans immediately started saying, "How can you defeat a weeping angel?" You right. know, mm-hmm. and we we see the the way they do it in that episode, which is to get the angels around the TARDIS and then dematerialize the TARDIS. So that the angels are all facing each other, so they're all quantum locked as statues. But immediately, fans started saying, "How else can you? How else can you do this?" Like, and for example, how can you compensate for your need to blink? And Amy, without anyone suggesting it to her, and without even talking about it, starts doing it. She closes one eye at a time, (laughs) so she starts blinking one eye at a time to get that lubrication on the eyeballs, but not not without losing visual track of the angel on the screen. That's nice that they incorporated that. Another thing that they incorporated that fans came up with was let's point a camera at a weeping angel, so it's always being observed. And they deal with that here, too, because right. now the angel is able to manipulate through the camera, since this is a powerful one, not just a scavenger barely surviving. It's able to manipulate things through the camera as well. So they're dealing with that also. And and that's neat. Yeah. And the doctor, meanwhile, is get this book from written by a madman about the weeping angels that he's trying to like at first, he's just trying to you know read it and find out what's go, how to defeat the angel in the hold. But then it becomes an important tool that he's trying to use to defeat the angel that's in the room with Amy. Mm-hmm. And he realizes that which holds the image of an angel becomes itself an angel. And that's a, yep. an important point. And it, it's an interesting new ability of the angels, like mentioned before, that uh, to escape from being quantum locked, that they get things to look at them and to record them. And that helps them get around that quantum lock. Amy is the one who comes up with a solution, by the way. They, the, both River and the Doctor are stymied trying to get in there. But Amy's solution is pause the video on the glitch at the end of the loop. So at, mm-hmm. at the loop, there's static on the screen. So by pausing the video on the static, the image of the angel is, is reduced uh, or, is or gone. eliminated, is gone. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, she starts rubbing at her eye as if it's irritated. 
and sand comes up for foreshadowing. Yeah, and the the doctor is telling her, and we hear this later in the episode as well, don't look it in the eyes, because if you look it in the eyes, it can get into your retina, your retina is holding the image, and it that's what causes problems for Amy later on. People have pointed out, of course, that in the original Blink, they do look the angel directly in the eyes face-to-face, you know? Right. You can, again, explain that as that, that was just a scavenger, but... Mm-hmm. Right. Some people have been critical of that and have not seen that ex- or have not spotted that explanation. Right. I I found it interesting that the eyes are so important. Mm-hmm. I don't think it works on a level of logic, but on a level of dream logic, it does mm-hmm. because eyes are ex- if you if you look at horror fiction, eyes are extremely important. You know, like yeah. a villain's eyes will sometimes, monster's eyes will sometimes glow, for example. And eyes are just extremely important for humans for evolutionary reasons, because they're our most vulnerable point, or one of our most vulnerable points. And they're incredibly important because vision is the sense through which humans primarily navigate the world, unlike smell for dogs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And also, eyes tell you something about what your opponent is thinking because if you're human you know about gaze tracking and you can tell if its gaze is not on me it's not as much of a threat as if it's looking directly at me and so eyes are very important for humans and they're tightly plugged into our fear response and so that don't look it in the eyes thing is really hard for us because we're wired to look at things in the eyes to try to read their minds. And so I think just for evolutionary reasons, this makes sense in a kind of dream logic way. In in terms of horror, in terms of biology, don't look it in its eyes doesn't make any sense. But in terms of horror logic, it does work. I think it's interesting, too, that this that they explain later that this is part of the evolutionary aspects of you know the the way the evolutionary tools that the angels have developed in the sense of looking at it quantum locks it so that it can't attack you but you have to look at it and therefore if you look at it in the eye you're mm-hmm. becoming its prey or you're becoming susceptible to it in another way so even though that's a, a a weapon against it it turns that weapon back against you it's kind of an interesting twist on the on that original you know you have to look at it thing so we find out that the hyperdrive in the Byzantium split on impact. The whole ship is flooded with radiation, which is bad for the people, uh, but is good for the angels. That's what they mm-hmm. they sort of live on that. So in addition to time energy from displacing people through time, apparently they also live just on regular old radiation. This particular kind of radiation. It, yes. It, right. Uh, drive burn radiation, they said. Cracked electrons, gravity storms, etc. Which is, that all sounds very interesting. So they go inside the catacomb, they they blast their way in, and they find it's full of statues because it's it's the maze of the dead. It's like an underground city, which is, I like the design. It's a pretty cool design. Mm-hmm. Um and we they throw this gravity globe, which is a basically it's a it's a it's a drone with a light on it. Exactly. That you and they can't. throw it. <laughs> yeah. It is like in the episode we just recorded Planet of Evil, they had yeah. a what was a drone that they called it like an opto something. It was a drone yeah. with a camera. An oculoid dr- or something, yeah. 
Yeah, this is a drone with a light. It's just a drone, guys. No big deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, it, it floats up above them and lights up the whole thing. And they talk about how uh, the you know it's it's in, in some ways it's like the the, Rome, the catacombs in Rome where the Christians buried the dead, and mm-hmm. you know in the ground in the walls and so it's and others anymore. and others. Yeah, it's a little no, more creepy well. than that. Then we have Octavian and River have a little side conversation about not letting the doctor know about River's status and that she was in prison and why. We'll find out later. They'll they'll tell us that in in these two episodes, we find out that it's because she killed a good man who was a hero to many. And of course, we'll find out all about that much later on in the next season, I think it is. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that's to come. But that becomes a huge plot point where Octavian is holding this over River's head, where, you know, if, if you don't keep in line, I'm going to tell the doctor about you. So two soldiers are sent off to explore a cave while they're getting ready to start climbing up. And in that cave, one of the soldiers, we hear stone scraping, which is an angel apparently moving out of his view that attacks him. And this is a problem I have with with some of this, because wasn't it established that they're only stone? The angels are only stone when they're being looked at, and otherwise they're not stone? This is a kind of disputed point. Yeah. Some people are of the opinion, some fans are of the opinion that that we don't know what the angels are like when they're not quantum-locked, and that they are definitely not statues when they are not quantum-locked. And so you don't know what they're like when they're not being observed, and that's a big part for some fans of what makes them mysterious and intriguing. And so some fans really hated that the angels in this two-parter are portrayed as being stone angel statues that are just able to move when you're not looking at them. Right. Some fans really hated that, but I don't think that that's implied by the original. I think if you go back to Blink and you watch the way the angels move when they're not being observed, I mean, we don't see them doing the moving, but as soon as someone opens their eyes again, the angel's in a new position, and they've. it's not just that the statue's closer to you. The statue has moved its arms and has opened its mouth and is baring its teeth and things like that. And that implies to me that, no, there is continuity between their statue bodies and what they're doing when they're not being observed, because otherwise you wouldn't get that menacing exit posture as soon as someone opens their eyes. Right. I mean, the, the appearance is the same, but are they still like, because in this one, the doctor literally says, it, explaining to Amy that, you know, in the light, sight of any living creature, the li- angels literally cease to exist. They're just stone, and the ultimate defense mechanism. And Amy says, what, being a stone? And the doctor says, being a stone until you turn your back. And I would interpret that to mean there, I mean, you can, t- I, I agree that's ambiguous. It It could mean oh, they're not stone, I would interpret that to mean they're just a stone. Right. They're not capable of moving. Okay. Well, we... we, we, They're they're like Stone Boy from the Legion of Substitute Heroes until he he powers up and and learns self-hypnosis so he can move while he's asleep. (laughs) There you go. Uh, So uh, we we hear this scraping of, as, you know, stalking the soldier. He turns a corner, the angel attacks him, and then it imitates his voice in mm-hmm. through the radio and gets another soldier to come in and get attacked. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. 
the doctor and Octavian and River and all the, the others are are making their way. And a one of the soldiers. Oh, sorry, going back, going back to the going back to the voice. Yeah, you know, and that that was that was flash to uh, the the library, whereas you know the repeating. Oh the, yeah, come and see, yeah. come and see. You know, right? Who turned out the lights? Who yeah. turned out the lights? Yes, uh, which was a different phenomenon, of course. But yep. but you know that was ghosting. Again. But this is yeah a throwback to that it, well it's a, i think it's a little bit of misdirection isn't it like maybe moffat yep. writes that in to make us wonder what is really what is that really is it the exactly. is it ghosting again or something else yeah uh so uh, also amy has sand fall out of her eye which is creepy yes, yes like a big a big pile of it so one of the well, soldiers ends up shooting up one of the statues because he thought it moved and he gets dressed down by octavian but of course it he was right might might have actually moved uh, and we find out his name is Bob, Sacred Bob, which the doctor then says, scared Bob, but scared is good. Um, scared keeps you alive. Well, he says Bob is a sacred name, and so the doctor starts calling him Sacred Bob. Yep. <laughs> right, and the others right. have the others have names like Angelo and Christian or Crispin, and, and, and those are more classic saint names. I mean, there are, Robert is actually a saint name. You have like St. Robert Bellarmine. Right. Mm-hmm. But the shortened form Bob <laughs> is, uh, is... A little different, and I like the playfulness of okay. By the by, the fifty first century, there is a Saint Bob, not just a yeah. Saint Robert. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and and uh, he does assure him, "Scared is good. Scared keeps you alive." Uh, which yeah. is, which kind of comes back to bite him. So Charles t- Manson said that too. <laughs> That's a little scary. I'm not kidding. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the doctor notes that the Applins who built the temple were good architects. That uh, having had a ship crash into it from space told he's and he mentions that he had dinner with their chief architect once and he had two heads huh and that's when the doctor in river if there's a little bit of dialogue finally realized that all the statues in the maze have one head why would the applins build statues with one head if they have two heads well that's because these all these statues in the maze yep. must all be weeping angels well it took the it took the doctor and and River a little bit of time because, you know, he throws that out just like, oh, yeah, he had two heads. He was, you know, great. But, you know, and talking about, you know, self-marriage and things like this. And also, right. wait a second. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And- let's talk about the self-marriage thing for a moment. <laughs> uh, he, he the the doctor kind of rags on the church for uh, saying uh, then they started having laws against self-marriage. That's the church for you. No offense, Bishop. Right. And Father Octavian gets a great line. He says, yes. Quite a lot taken, if that's all right, Doctor. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and and, exactly. and then and then Amy ha- chimes in with, "Well, you must admit they have a point. I mean, the divorces would be rather messy." <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, divorcing your own uh, head. Yeah. Also, there is an explanation as the Doctor and River are berating themselves for uh, not. Why didn't we see this earlier? The Doctor speculates low level perception filter. Or maybe we're just thick. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, I'll go with the latter, personally. <laughs> and and so what they say is they, they realize that the Applins, who are all gone from this planet by now and replaced by six billion uh, humans, uh, must have been killed off by the angels. And then the angels were left starving underground for centuries with no, you know nothing to feed on. And so the loss of their form, because the, the, these statues are all, they don't look like weeping angels. They look like, just old, degraded Weathered. statues, you know, centuries old. Really uh, and that, degraded. And yep. so that must have been part of their starvation. 
And then they realized that the weeping angel on board the Byzantium was was not dormant, it was patient, and intentionally crashed it as a rescue mission to use the radiation to wake up an army of weeping angels, thus to take over the planet, the galaxy, the world, the universe, etc. So this is this is this we've got the stakes here. Uh, you know, the the stakes of the episode. Now, Sacred Bob had been left behind to go catch up with Angelo and Crispin, I think, who had been by now killed by the angel. And he calls them, calls the doctor and Octavian on the radio. But of course, it turns out it's not him. The angel killed him and stripped his cerebral cortex from his body and is using a version of his consciousness to communicate with the doctor, (laughs) which is wicked creepy <laughs> yeah that is, this is one of the creep for me this is the creepy thing about this episode is they're they're using his part of his cerebral cortex to talk to the doctor since they don't have a voice of their own and there's still his personality there and everything too where he's like sorry about that sir yes yeah yes. he's really polite and kind of vulnerable and humble and it's it's it just adds to the creepiness and 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 throws and you mentioned earlier but in throws the doctor's words you said if I was scared, I would survive. Well, I didn't, did I, Doctor? And that makes him mad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he he also, it comes out in pieces. Um, it's like, well, how did you survive? I'm afraid I didn't, sir. Well, how did you die? He snapped my neck, sir. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. And, it wasn't and, as and painless is, as I expected, he says. Oh, what's man. that? He says it wasn't as painless as, as he expected. Yeah, that Ooh. was great. <laughs> I find... This neck snapping, I'm I'm kind of torn about the neck snapping because the point in Blink was the the weeping angels, the lonely assassins, they're the politest villains in the universe. They just move you into the past and let you live to death. Right. And here, that's not happening. They're not porting people to the past to feed on their temporal energy. They're snapping their necks. Now, I agree that in this kind of story, just teleporting soldiers into the past would not be as creepy as snapping their necks. Right. So it does serve the interests of this story to do the neck snapping, but it's inconsistent with what we've learned before. And even though they try to have a, they have a line of dialogue that kind of tries to explain it as, oh, well, they're focused on this other thing, so they're not sending people into the past. It really doesn't seem to work for me. It's, it's, inconsistent it serves the needs of this story but it's it's too inconsistent with what we've had before about the angel mythology when i i thought it i thought it actually i thought it did work uh uh-huh. for because it was the one angel the angel that was on the byzantium that you know had crashed the ship to re- recover all these angels he's the one that's running around talking on the the walk talkies with with sacred bob's uh consciousness and it fit where he was doing this so that he could start, you know, communicating with with the people there and basically getting them scared, you know, getting them to that point where he'd be able basically that's so that he could win. He would get his armies of angels going and oh by the way we're coming and you're going to get your next, you know, that type of deal. But every everybody who dies in this, none of them are sent back in time for time displacement. Everyone is next snap. Yeah, whereas in Blink three and in are, Angels well, Take Manhattan, it's all going back in time. See, there's there's three of them that die, and then the rest of them are in the next episode with something else happening to them. Well, Octavian right. dies the same way. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> I, I gotta say, I really like Octavian. He gets some good lines in these oh, two yeah. episodes. Like, he, at he one gives- point, right here, the doctor says, you know, oh, uh, 
Everyone run. Go, I'm coming. I, I'm sorry I called you an idiot, uh, but there's no way, sorry, there's no way you could have rescued your men. And Octavian says, I know that, sir. And when you've flown away in your little blue box, I'll explain that to your family, to their families. I mean, yep. yeah. ouch. <laughs> ouch. Um, so uh, th- th- this is the point where they start running to get to the ship, to get out that way. They can't go back because the angels are behind them. Uh, but Amy has to stop and because she's turning to stone. Her, her, she looks down and her hand is, is stone. But the doctor says, no, you're not. You're not turning to stone. You're only being fooled by the angel in your head. And uh, she, she tries to get him to leave her behind and save the others. So she's trying to do this selfless thing. But he gets her to move finally by biting her hand so she knows it's not stone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you rather, bit me. Rather clever way to do it. Rather clever way to do it. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Charlie bit me. <laughs> that old viral video. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, uh, and and the, the creepiness here is effective because they have the, the flashlights, their torches, keep you know, blinking on and off because their power's being drained. And every time it blinks on and off, you see the statues moving closer and closer. And they're not right on top of them because they're, these are the degraded statues that are, they, they don't have their full power yet. So they're, yep. they're moving slowly. So they explain it that way. So they, uh, they get right under the Byzantium, which is, you know, 30 feet above, 30 meters above their head or 30 feet, mm-hmm. whatever. And uh, no, you know, they're trapped. It's way more than 30 feet. Yeah, it must be 30 meters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, They're trapped here. There's no way out. The angels are coming down the corridors at them. And then the angel, we call him Angel Bob, gets the doctor mad by telling him that despite telling Bob it's okay to be scared, like we said before, Mm -hmm. died afraid, in pain, and alone, he trusted the doctor, and the doctor let him down. And the doctor realized they're trying to get him angry, so he'll make a mistake. But the doctor says, they're the ones who made the mistake, because you've, you've laid a trap. But you left the doctor in it, you know, and we get, you know, the, oh, you, you silly fool, the doctor's better than you uh, sort of moment here. Um, well, it, it is played ni- fairly nicely. It, and, yeah. and they're doing some important stuff here. They need to, because the ship is so far above them and the angels are between them and the ship on the Maze of the Dead, right. there's no way for them to get up to the ship. So the doctor takes a gun from Father Octavian, a pistol, and he says, when I do the thing I'm about to do, and you'll know it when you see it, jump. Right. And Octavian is like, what? It's just take a leap of faith, Father. Yes. And And so then the doctor has a, the speech about, you know, this whole setup is a trap, but there's one thing you never want to put in a trap. Bob says, what's that? The doctor says, me, and shoots the gravity globe so it blows up. Right. End of episode. That's the end of episode. And uh, so we'll pick up from there next time what continues from there any last notes about this episode before we well, i have to get a bit of feedback listener feedback but i want to get to but uh, any last notes on this episode Just father Cork? one small thing when there were when uh rivers talking about the ship uh, says that it's a galaxy class ship that didn't yes. look like the enterprise to me but <laughs> <laughs> right i thought this was an effective fast-paced episode i enjoyed it mm-hmm. it's not it's not blink for me but it's it is it is definitely a fun episode Absolutely. Okay, so we get a little bit of feedback here from uh, our episode on Russell T. Davies and the Tenth Doctor retrospective. Uh, we got a message, a comment from Nancy Quarter on our website at sqpn.com, and uh, she she took some exception to to uh, some of our uh, takes. So I hope we can uh-huh. respond to this effectively. Uh, we said she says 
Uh, Doctor Nine again is dissed. The reboot could have failed miserably, but no, it attracted a new audience and saved Doctor Who. Give Nine some credit. Had an actor of, let's say, Peter Capaldi's ilk been chosen, who would have died a quiet death? Christopher Eccleston was instrumental in Who's successful rebirth. You seem more interested in his personal squabbles than in, in his performance. Uh, so let's talk about that part first, and then she also has a, a comment about what we said about Rose. Mm-hmm. I don't think we were necessarily dissing uh, the Ninth Doctor, Christopher Eccleston. Uh, I thought mm, some of his episodes, no. I think his performance was fine. I think some of the writing wasn't great. I think we we were more upset about the episodes themselves. Yeah. And, you know, and we're, we're pretty clear about that. It's not so much the actors themselves. I, I, I can't think of us ever saying, oh, I really didn't like that actors that, well, let me rephrase that. <laughs> Colin Baker, <laughs> we have said, at least mo- most of us have said that he is not yes. liked as the doctor. But I don't think we've ever said that about Christopher Eccleston. And I think even when we did our ranking the doctors, I think all three of us said, we ranked him lower, but it wasn't because of Christopher Eccleston. It was because of the, the episodes, episodes that he had, right. the writing that he had. Right. And the amount of time he was on the show, we didn't have a chance to know him as well as right. some other doctors. I don't mind Christopher Eccleston's doctor. I don't dislike him. Uh, he's just not... And it makes sense, coming out of the Time War, that he would be a bit moody. Fortunately, he's not as moody as Colin Baker or Peter Capaldi. Right. I think that's just an objective fact. He's not as he's not as happy as say David Tennant or Matt Smith most of the time. And I tend to gravitate to the happier doctors. So I don't dislike him. He I just don't like him as much as some of the other doctors. And 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 in terms of his personal yeah. struggles with the show, I don't hold that as a strike against him at all. If anything, I I included or to the extent I contributed to that discussion, it was to include mitigating factors to help people understand what he was going through and how how he was having to soldier on despite these difficulties. He was still getting the show made. Yeah. I think that's to his credit. I think, I mean, when we're talking in a retrospective on Russell T. Davies Zero, which we were, I think that's important to talk about because that's that's an important element in a showrunner's way of running the show. I think it says more about a criticism, that's more a criticism of Russell T. Davies than it is of Christopher Eccleston. Yeah. I mean, he was apparently, he has talked in recent years about how he was dealing with depression and other mental health issues at the same time. And that's Mm -hmm. to his credit that he was able to do as good a job as he did. And to the discredit of the people in the show's staff who kind of mistreated him, you could say. At at some point, we'll we'll probably do a a retrospective of of, uh, John Nathan Turner, who was, of course, the, the last one of the classic Who showrunners. And there's a lot there we can talk about that. We made a lot of mistakes. Behind the scenes stuff. And he made yeah. a lot of mistakes. Colin Baker. Um, <laughs> right. Among others. You know, so I mean, there's there's a lot there that we can talk about without dissing the doctors that were involved in it. Yeah. yeah. And I don't I don't even dislike Colin Baker. It's just he was given horrible writing to work with. Yep. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Not a moment too soon. Uh. <laughs> All right, and then the second part of Nancy's uh, message, she says, uh, also, Rose is vapid. She's a dropout who lost her dad, living with a single mom, scraping by. She's a teenager, for heaven's sake, looking for a job, finding her way. Give her a break. I have to say, I mean... Is Rose a teenager? I got the opinion she was more 20-ish. Yeah. 22, somewhere in there. Yeah. But the thing is, I mean, I give her a break. Under those conditions, but the fact is, they wrote her that way. I think yeah, that's the yeah. problem: is they shouldn't have written her that way. They should have, you know, not put her in that position. 
I mean, frankly, when you compare her to Ace, who is of the same age and uh, you know they're about background. similar background, right? Similar background. Ace comes off much less vapid in some at some points, much less vapid than Rose is. Rose gets better as she goes on, mm-hmm. but yes. especially that first season was was tough. Yeah, it it I I think there's a difference between looking at it in terms of within the story. Within the story, yeah, Rose is the way she is because of the life she's led. That's totally understandable. She had a, a rough upbringing. She she did grow up in a situation that didn't allow her to flourish the way she could with the doctor. That's the in story explanation and and as an in-story explanation it works just fine but looking at it from outside the story from the writer's perspective does it make her a companion that resonates with people well some people yeah some people resonated great with her i didn't resonate with her as much because especially the way she starts out she's whiny and i i don't like whiny companions i don't like perry as a companion, I mean, I like the individuals involved. I just don't like the way they're written. I didn't like Perry, who's whining all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't like Ryan, who's whiny all the time. Right. And I didn't like the early Rose, who was whiny all the time. And part of the reason that Rose is whiny is because in the Russell T. Davies era, they're doing a thing where they're trying to deflate ordinary life in order to build up the doctor and make him seem like the most amazing thing ever. And it's in the service of doctor worship that they have to run down Rose's ordinary life to where Rose herself is talking about, oh, it's just going to be, you know, chips in the shop and things like that. And my life is so meaningless, just like yours, mom and Mickey. And it's like, hey, I want to stand up for ordinary folks here. Right. Everybody's life has meaning, and you don't need to run down ordinary people to make the doctor look good. Yes, uh, I I agree. I agree. Um, but th- Nancy, thank you for for the, your perspective, and thank you for your feedback. Yeah. We love it, even when even when folks, especially when folks disagree with us, because it makes for interesting discussion to to get. Yeah. Though. So in in fact, when I'm selecting feedback for Mysterious World, I I, I automatically elevate the feedback where people are expressing other points of view because those are important. Yes. So thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, All right. So uh, let's wrap things up with, uh, we want to thank our patrons, especially. Uh, We want to take a moment to thank them for making the secrets of Doctor Who possible, including Corey L., Jerry S., Armand P., Teresa C., and Susan B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest, you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits this show for us every week and takes out our flubs and <laughs> mistakes so that you don't ever have to hear them. And uh, so that's it from us. What did you think of The Time of the Angels, this first of a two-parter of The 11th Doctor? Let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or The Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page. Or you can send us an email to Who at sqpn.com. And like I said, we'll be back next time where we'll be discussing the second part of this two-parter called Flesh and Stone. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. I'm glad to be here, and thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, 
I could run away from anything I like. Time is not the boss of me. Right. This is going to be fun. 